Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. So there are two faculties that the soul has that are above, beyond our conscious minds our personalities. Will is one of them. Will is not a part of our personality because we don't always control it. In fact, will controls us. The desire to live, for example, is not a choice. It's not that at some point in life we decide we want to live. If you are alive, then you have the will to live. So it's not something I can create, it's not something I can produce. It's bigger than me. In fact, it's what helps me be me. When you want, everything else happens. If you want to be well, you will recover. If you want to survive, you will survive. If you want to be smart, your brain will work. If you want to feel, then you will have emotions and so on. The other faculty that is bigger than our personalities is pleasure. In fact, pleasure is the highest of all soul activity. The first impulse, the first movement, the first action within the soul is the experience of pleasure. So much so that we could correctly say that life and pleasure are synonymous. Life is pleasure, pleasure is life. There cannot be life that isn't pleasure. And there can be no pleasure where there's no life. There are people who have a high pleasure threshold. They get pleasure from everything, from nothing, from breathing. Everything is a pleasure. And then there are people who are not so good at it. They don't seem to experience much pleasure. Everything is so-so. It's all right, nothing special takes a lot for them to feel pleasure. They have an interesting sense of humor. It's called dry. <laughs> Dull. Pleasure is the highest of all soul activity. Will is the strongest. Pleasure is the highest. Let's understand the difference. Will is a dictator. Will imposes itself on the rest of the system. When you want to lift the truck because there's a baby caught under it, the will does not consider, does not take into account the frailty of your body the fact that according to nature you cannot lift a truck, 
You just don't have that ability. It is not within the realm of possibility. Will doesn't seem to notice. I desperately want to pick that truck up, so I'm going to, and I will. And after I've picked the truck up and put it back down, it's still impossible. I did it, but I can't believe I did it. I did it once, doesn't mean I can do it again. Because now that the will has calmed down, now I'm back to normal. Normal, I can't lift trucks. Nobody can. So there's nothing more powerful than will in the human system. Nothing can make things happen as effectively as will. That's why it is the most powerful. Being the most powerful, it also does not discriminate between the finer, higher, more developed faculties and the lesser, more simple, more dull faculties. So, for example, the will can dictate that your mind gets sharp, think fast, come up with an answer because we need one, and the mind will obey. When you really want, you become a genius. You study Talmud, for example, and there are these discussions on Jewish law, civil law, within Judaism. And there are cases where a woman comes and she says she was cheated out of something, and the other the guy says he didn't, and you got to resolve this case, right? So you have discussions where a maid, a slave woman, comes along and has complaints about something or another, and they take it to court, and they come to the rabbis, and the rabbis have to decide what uh, the verdict should be. And the possibilities that are discussed seem to be a little unrealistic. See, what if this woman, the slave woman, comes up with an argument that is absolutely, stunningly brilliant? What will you say then? Well, the question is, how is she going to come up with a brilliant argument like that that's going to stump the rabbis? The answer is, because it's her life. Not because she is studied, because she is learned, because she is wise. Everyone becomes smart when they need to be. So because she wants whatever it is that she's demanding, whether it's money or freedom or whatever, because she wants it, the will will make her brilliant. And she will pose problems that would cross a rabbi's eye. So will affects your brain. To the same degree and, to this, and in the same way, it will affect your heel. Because will is just powerful. And therefore, it doesn't need to consider the difference between a sophisticated brain and a simple, lowly heel. Now let's take a look at pleasure. Pleasure is the highest of all powers. What it has in common with will is that it too influences every other part of the system. Pleasure is felt everywhere. In everything that we do there is pleasure. If pleasure is the definition of life, 
then any sign of life must be accompanied with pleasure. So, you know, you can complain about getting up Monday morning, but you do get up because there's pleasure in it. It can even get twisted to where pain can be pleasure. Well, the famous expression, you know, call me names, insult me, put me down, but talk about me. <laughs> Don't ignore me. So it may not be completely pleasurable to be called an idiot, but there's a little pleasure there because at least you're talking about me. You know, just spell my name correctly. So pleasure is everywhere in everything. But the uniqueness of pleasure, what makes it different from all other impulses, is the fact that it neutralizes, it numbs all other experience. Let's make this clear. Will is powerful. It overrules all other activities. It doesn't care that your mind is limited, that your strength is limited, that you don't like doing what the will is demanding you do. It doesn't care. So it overrules anything else going on in your system. And that's why we sometimes do things that are really not wise. Because our will got carried away, and we end up doing stupid things, which, as we do it, we know we shouldn't. But you see, overruling all other impulses, overruling your mind, overruling your heart, doesn't mean that your mind and heart have stopped being themselves. Your mind can still be saying, let's not do this. Your heart can still be saying, I hate this. Why am I doing it? I don't even like this food. Why am I eating it? In pleasure, when a person experiences pleasure, all other impulses are canceled. Nothing else is happening. Because in pleasure, all other activity, all other impulses get drawn in absorbed. It's like little flames getting too close to a large flame. All the little flames will be drawn into the larger flame and disappear, become part of the big flame. The way pleasure works is that pleasure is expansive. Will is forceful. Pleasure is expansive. It touches everything. It reaches everywhere. It shows up everywhere. There is no place where the pleasure doesn't go. And therefore, when pleasure spreads throughout the whole system, every other part of the system gets drawn into that. So that when you're experiencing real pleasure, it becomes the only thing you're experiencing for that moment. There are different kinds of pleasure, different levels, different qualities in pleasure. There is the pleasure of the body, food, comfort, 
clothing gives us pleasure. There is the pleasure of the senses. You see a beautiful scenery. You hear beautiful music. You smell a wonderful aroma. These are pleasurable. There is the pleasure that one gets from good character. You hear a story about someone who did something really noble. You feel pleasure. You also are envious. You wish you could be that way. You wish you had said that. You wish you had done that. If you see your child do something virtuous, the pleasure is powerful. There's also the pleasure that comes from knowledge. When you understand the subject, when you get it, the pleasure is the highest of all pleasures. You light up, right? You gain a little piece of wisdom and you light up physically. People can see it on you. And they'll say, what? What happened? You're shining. And it's not the wisdom. It's the pleasure of the wisdom that is showing up on your face. In fact, the Talmud says, uh, make a long story short, pleasure causes the bones to expand. When you hear good news that brings you pleasure, your shoes become tight. You can't get your boots off because the bones in your feet expand. Pleasure is expansive. Whichever pleasure you're experiencing, they all have this one thing in common. It makes you feel the pleasure everywhere. So although the pleasure is coming from your mind, it shows up on your face, in your skin, in your bones. It's everywhere. Like oil, it spreads through everything. When we raise our children, we raise ourselves, one of the objectives is to get our children to choose the right kinds of pleasure. Where are you going to seek your pleasure? In the old books, you know, you always had to go out to seek your fortune. <laughs> Where do you seek your pleasure? We try to encourage children, we try to cultivate in children a preference for the higher forms of pleasure. But the higher forms of pleasure don't really describe the pleasure itself. It describes the activity that ought to be your pleasure. Knowledge is, of course, more virtuous, more valuable, more significant than food or clothing. So rather than find your pleasure in clothing or in food, find your pleasure in knowledge, in wisdom. And that's why we make a point of displaying great pleasure to our children when they say something smart or they ask a good question. They show signs of intelligence. We get very excited. <laughs> Not only hopeful, it's pleasurable. And we hope that the children pick that up and follow the example of seeking further pleasure in being intelligent and asking good questions, coming up with good answers. Let's compare 
pleasure to love. Obviously, there is pleasure in good emotions and good feelings. Love is a good feeling most of the time. What is the difference between the experience of pleasure and the experience of love? They're not synonymous. The difference is love is the impulse that draws you towards another person. The desire for closeness, that's the direction of love. So will is the dictator, the commander. Its direction is downward. It dictates to everything below itself. The direction of love is outward towards another person seeking closeness. Hate or fear is the opposite of love in its direction. It dictates that you create more distance, that you withdraw, that you run away. Pleasure, on the other hand, its direction, its behavior, its property is that it expands. It infiltrates all other feelings. When we reach a high degree of pleasure, what happens? What does it do to us? So now we'll understand this. Pleasure is everywhere, and pleasure is the highest. There's no higher impulse. If it's everywhere, then when you're feeling pleasure, it gathers into itself all your other talents, all your other impulses, and they all become part of that pleasure. The result is that you're feeling only one experience. All you're feeling is the pleasure. There's nothing else going on. When that happens, it feels like you're expiring. It feels like you're expiring. You're leaving your body because none of your other impulses are working. You're not conscious, you're not involved or invested in any other feeling. It's like you've left. It's like you're not there anymore. This is called, literally, this is called expiring or ecstasy. What exactly is ecstasy? It's not the same as excitement. In fact, they have nothing in common. Excitement is a cheap thrill. Ecstasy is something very different. Ecstasy means when all the energy of your soul is so focused and so united to where you are experiencing only one impulse, and that impulse is pleasure, and the pleasure impulse is synonymous with life then you are so caught up in the experience of life that you seem, paradoxically, you seem almost lifeless. The previous Rebbe says that he was traveling with his father, who was, of course, the Rebbe before him. And he had an incredible mind. And they came to this hotel, and the son 
went out to do some errands, and he left his father sitting on the sofa. When he came back two hours later, his father hadn't moved. His father hadn't moved. So he waited, respectfully, because his father was lost in thought. More hours went by, his father doesn't move. It went on for so long that the son really started to become concerned. But then his father opened his eyes and asked him questions that were meant to indirectly gather the information as to where they were, what day it was, and what time it was. Because he had been so lost in his own thoughts and in the pleasure of that, of that wisdom that he had completely lost touch with where he was and when he was, time and space. He had to reorient himself back into time and space. There's also a story of a famous rabbi who was a great musician, composer. And in his later years, he needed an operation. This was back in, in Poland or Russia. He needed an operation, but he wasn't strong enough to handle the anesthetic. They were worried about his not coming out of the anesthetic. So he told them that if, uh, told the doctors that if they give him a few minutes, he'll get into a song, he'll start a song, and he will get into the song, and they can perform the operation, and he won't feel anything. Because when he gets into song, that's the only thing he feels. And they did. I won't sing you the song, but it's a, fam it's a famous, well-known song. It's actually Hungarian. At any rate, we find that pleasure is so high that when you get into that pleasure to a, to a high degree, it takes you out of any other experience, which is, of course, lower. So it takes you out of all the lower experiences and focuses you completely, exclusively, and entirely on this one sensation. And that is pleasure. Because there is nothing higher than pleasure, because it is synonymous with life, because it is the experience of ecstasy, Therefore, we need to be more particular, more careful, more respectful, more reverent about our pleasures than any other impulse. Of course, you have to be careful what you want. Right? You know, you got to be careful what you what you pray for. You also have to be careful what you love. Love is powerful and it can be very destructive. So you have to be on top of your impulses, your feelings, emotions. And that's why we have values. That's why we need to study, we need to be taught, we need to be educated what's moral, what's not, what's noble, what's ordinary, what is holy, what is secular. We need to know these things because we are equipped with dangerous weapons, powerful weapons, love, 
hate, will, pleasure. And if we're not educated and trained on how to use and employ these weapons, we can become very destructive to ourselves and to others, as we've seen throughout all of history. More than any other, we have to be careful with our pleasure. The higher the power is, the more sacred it needs to be. Or the more sacred it is, and therefore needs to be treated with sanctity. And that's why the ultimate sinning, when you don't specify which sin, you say, person's a sinner, generally you mean sexual sin. Because it's the abuse or misuse of pleasure. And that's also why the way we eat, the way we train our children to eat, has such a powerful effect on the rest of our lives. Because the first pleasure activity that a child engages in is eating almost all the time. They're constantly involved with food. The way we train the children, the attitudes we give them about food and about satisfying their hunger and so on, is the basis for all of life. So, for example, if we teach a child not to eat greedily, don't eat everything you see, don't, don't eat with both hands. Have food in both hands? That's not nice. Learn to wait a minute. Delay for a second. Don't be a slave to your pleasures. There are children who are very impatient. I'm talking about very young children. They're very impatient. When they're hungry, they demand food immediately. They will not tolerate a delay. So if the child is screaming for food and the mother says, I'll be right there, not acceptable. <laughs> not I'll be right there, now. The mother says, well, I'm warming it up. It'll be warm enough. No, now. <laughs> Sometimes it gets so bad, you actually sit down with the child and you put a spoon of food in their mouth and then they scream because the next spoon is not ready. You're sitting right there feeding them. They will scream between each spoon. And what that shows is that they have no tolerance. Their pleasure is so demanding that they cannot tolerate the delay even of a second. That's got to change. Imagine the child grows up and continues to feel that way. He will be a monster. Nobody's going to want to marry him. <laughs> so we train our children. Eat like a mensch. Eat nicely. Eat with a little etiquette. Eat with a fork, eat with a knife, eat with a napkin. Why do we do all that? What's wrong with just eating like a barbarian? You got the food, eat it. How? What's the difference? You don't have a spoon? Stick your mouth into the plate and slurp up the soup. No, can't do that. Why not? What are we trying to prove? What is this etiquette business? 
because we don't have to take it to extremes either. Now you've got to put the fork down just so. I mean, that's going a little too far. But why is there a fork? What's wrong with eating with your hands? The truth, of course, is there is nothing wrong with eating with your hands. There's something wrong with eating. And we're trying to pretty it up. Indulging in a pleasure that is so similar to animal pleasure, because animals eat also, we feel compelled to do something to distinguish our activity from animal activity. So we come up with these conventions. A spoon, a fork, a knife, a tablecloth, a napkin. But what we're really trying to do is harness, put a little bit of a control on this impulse. Otherwise, it will, it will govern us. It will imprison us. It will enslave us by its intensity. You teach a child to eat respectfully, now the child is better able to resist taking another child's toy, even though the toy will give him a lot of pleasure, and he really likes it. And he's been playing with it now for a while. He wants to take it home. He will be able to put it back on the shelf because he is not a slave to his, to his pleasures. So when we talk about food and how to eat and when to eat and when not to eat and so on, we're basically saying, get control of your pleasures. And with an eye towards the future, get control of your more dangerous pleasure, which is the sexual pleasure. And the way to do that is not by putting down the pleasure, but by respecting it. You don't abuse or misuse your pleasures, not because they're disgusting and bad, but because they're too sacred to mistreat. They're too powerful to waste. They're too important to ignore. And so to just let your pleasures go wherever they go, that's not respectful. That's not realistic. It's like going to war and having no respect for your enemy. That's dangerous. You have to have a healthy respect for your enemy and then know how to handle it. So, getting back to the definitions. Every impulse, every activity of the soul has a certain movement because all of life is made up of movements. Where there is no activity, there is no life. So every impulse, every sensation, every faculty, every power of the soul is a certain movement. And if we can identify the movement, then we have identified that particular function. The movement of mind is to rise. The mind always wants to know what's above. What don't I know yet? That's why it asks. In other words, it is seeking. But it is seeking that which is above. So its direction and its movement is from below upwards. The direction of emotion 
is the opposite. Emotions move downwards. If I really love you very much, I want to tell you. Now, speaking is not nearly as significant as the emotion that it's expressing. And yet the emotion moves towards the expression. If I love you, I want to talk to you. But talk is cheap. <laughs> Anybody can say nice words. But that's the nature of emotions. It moves downwards. It wants to speak about it, and it wants to act on it. If you love somebody, you want to take care of them. You want to do for them. But doing is just an external activity. Yeah, and that's where love wants to go, downwards. Actually, all emotions go downwards. So it moves me towards you, but it finds its completion, its fulfillment, in the speaking and in the doing, which is below itself. Strangely enough, although intelligence is superior to emotions, because going up is superior to going down, and emotions are superior to behavior, because behavior is just an external activity, yet the greatest pleasure, the strongest pleasures, we experience in the least significant activities. So, for example, the pleasure that we get from seeing, the pleasure we get from, from the, through the eyes, is more powerful than the pleasure we get from intelligence. Intelligence is a higher pleasure, but the more intense pleasure comes from seeing and from hearing. You see something that is beautiful, and you feel the pleasure, you experience the pleasure of that, of that view, of that sight, or music. If you have a real feeling for music, and you experience the beautiful, pleasurable sounds of a great composition, it is so overwhelming that you can't get back to functioning for hours after the pleasure is gone. I don't know if you ever had that experience. But there are people who say, people who are geniuses, great scholars, whose entire life was devoted to pursuing knowledge, to thinking, studying, explaining, analyzing. That was their whole life. But after listening to a great composition, they couldn't think. They couldn't concentrate for hours because they couldn't shake off the effects of the pleasure that they had from the music or from the view. The reason for that is that life works in circles. The highest impulse of the soul will find most of its expression in the lowest activities of the soul. There are actually people who, who are depressed, clinically. They can't concentrate, ever. They can't harness their emotions. They're, they're numb. 
their heart is dull, the brain is dull, nothing's happening. They can't complete a project. Projects that they once used to love, they can't do it. But if they run, if they run a mile, or two, or five, that gives them such pleasure, they come alive. They get rid of the dullness. They can't find pleasure in using their mind. They can't find any pleasure in feelings. Somebody loves them, they don't know how to respond. They can't respond. They don't love the people they used to love. The heart has gone numb. So all of their higher faculties are, are not feeling any pleasure. But if they simply run, now what is that? has no talent at all. That is the lowest activity that a soul is capable of, and that is movement. Now, where does movement happen? In the feet. Why in the feet? Because they're the least talented things we got. And since running is not a talent, the brain is not going to do it. The brain, the brain says, what kind of challenge is this? I'm not running. The heart won't do it. I know we have the expression, your heart can run away with you, can run away on you, but the heart doesn't run. It wants more sophisticated activity. So which part of the body is willing to run? Not even your hands. Your hands will write, they'll play piano, they'll, they'll work a computer. They're not going to run. They're too talented for that. So. It's left to the feet. Because the feet are the least talented, the least sensitive, therefore they are the most willing to just run if you have to run or walk. And yet there are times when the only place you can feel any pleasure is in your feet, is in walking or moving, running, aerobics, vision, hearing, smelling, they're also very unimpressive faculties. Oh, I can see. Oh, you're very talented. <laughs> I can hear music. You're gifted. You don't have to do anything. You open your eyes. You see. If there's a sound anywhere within, within the, the, the wavelength of of sound, you're going to hear it. And yet we find that the pleasure there is more powerful than the pleasure of the mind and the heart and the more talented parts of our personalities. Smell is also that way. When a person has fainted, you use smelling salts. Why is that? Why can't you talk to him? Reason with him. Tell him it's dangerous, you got to get up. Doesn't help. Tell him you love him. Cry and be upset. It's not going to help. But you put this nasty smell under his nose and it wakes him up. Because somehow that smell reaches the pleasure in the soul and annoys it. <laughs> because it's a horrible smell. So it, it stimulates or aggravates 
your pleasure impulse, and that returns every other activity, restores all other activity within, within the, the human being. So that is the nature of pleasure. We are told that holidays are a time of joy. Shabbos is a time of pleasure. And that's why Shabbos is not called a festival. Maybe because it comes too often. <laughs> you, can't, you can't have constant pleasure or constant joy. So festivals, times of joy, are set aside you know, for special occasions. The weekly experience is the experience of pleasure. The karasola Shabbos Oneg. Oneg Shabbos. That's the pleasure of Shabbos. The reason that Shabbos is related to pleasure and not joy is because on Shabbos, the world experiences ecstasy. What happened? Six days God created the world, and on the seventh he rested. Well, he can't really rest completely because, you know, if he stops creating the world, there isn't going to be anything. So even on Shabbos, he has to keep the world going. He can't retire completely. So what keeps the world going? See, during the six days of creation, the first day was created from God's kindness. God expressed his kindness, and you had Sunday. When God expressed his judgment, you had Monday. See why nobody likes Mondays? <laughs> Everybody feels it. You wake up Monday morning and you feel judgment day. When God expressed his compassion, you got Tuesday. And so on through the week. What is it that animates Saturday, Shabbos, God's pleasure. God created the world in six days, and when it was completed, what did he have? Pleasure. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So that pleasure is what is now animating the day, the day of Shabbos. And because it is essentially a time of pleasure, therefore God invites us to keep his Shabbos, join him in his day of pleasure by experiencing that pleasure ourselves. But now we're talking about holy pleasure. And for that you need an extraordinary sensitivity. To be able to experience that pleasure, you need a godly soul. The human soul won't handle it. So that takes us away from the topic and away from our, from our agenda here. Because what we're trying to understand and explain is human nature. Before we introduce divine impulses, godly soul, holiness, and so on. But it's important to know that the ultimate pleasure is not human at all. Because pleasure really belongs in heaven. And the fact that we have pleasure on earth, a little bit of a contradiction in terms. Pleasure is the ultimate holiness. And that's why Shabbos is holier than holidays. On holidays you're allowed to cook, you're allowed to carry, 
on Shabbos. Now we'll understand this. All activities that we do during the week, you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. Does this make any sense now? What happens when you experience pleasure? All other functions stop. When you're experiencing pleasure, you can't be worried about business. If you're worried about business, it'll interfere with your pleasure. When you're experiencing pleasure, everything else has to stop. It does stop if the pleasure is strong. Shabbos means when you're focused on this one experience, this one impulse, which is the pleasure of holiness, everything else stops. Then you don't care whether the food is cooked or not cooked, the lights are on or off, you bought the stuff, you didn't buy the stuff. It's no longer relevant because in a time of pleasure, there is only pleasure. And that again is what we mean when we say pleasure is the highest of all impulses. Nothing competes with it. It doesn't have to overrule all your other impulses. It draws it all in. And it all becomes part of the pleasure. So what is our greatest pleasure? As human beings, before we get to the godly part, our greatest pleasure is to see our children being good. Of course, there's pleasure in just having children. There's also pleasure in having children who are cute. The cuter, the better. There's also a pleasure in having children who are cute and intelligent. That's an even greater pleasure. But it doesn't compare to the pleasure that we have when we see our child doing something good, being good. It makes everything, all other issues, all other concerns and worries, aches and pains, uh, agony and ecstasy, they all vanish because you have a good kid. Is that not the, the fact? So in psychology, we try to figure out what is the core? What is the center of a human being? What makes him tick? And one school of thought says pleasure, erotic impulses. Another one says finding meaning in life. Another one says arrogance, egotism. We know what the center of our life is because none of the above compares to the intensity, to the desperation, and to the pleasure that we have when our children are good. Isn't that a fact? This is probably why nobody has ever admitted to having bad children. <laughs> they can admit their kid did something bad. They can't admit they have bad children because they wouldn't survive it. The pleasure of having good children is so intense, it tells you how painful it would have to be to recognize or admit that your children are bad. So the Torah says, if your child is bad and he won't listen to you, haul him into court and stone him to death. Right. Because that's what you got to do. You know, the kid needs killing. <laughs> 
because he's just bad. And if you don't kill him now, you'll have to kill him after he has become a murderer. So why wait? That's logical. The Talmud says it never happened. No parents ever brought their kid to the court and said, bad. <laughs> we got to nip it in the bud. This is a murderer in the making. Nobody ever did that. So we said, well, if, no, if it never happened, why is it in the Torah? Why does God give a commandment that's never going to happen? The commandment is correct. A bad kid needs to be killed before he kills. Human beings, parents, are incapable of recognizing the badness in their own children. So Torah is right. If parents think their kids are bad, they should kill them. But who's going to think their kids are bad? It's too painful. So no matter what children do, and you know they get caught by the police, and, and the parents' reaction is always the same thing. Must have been their friends. I knew he shouldn't hang around with those kids. They're bad kids, those kids. I told them to stay away from them. But it can't be possible that my kid is just flat out rotten. Because that, you know, if, if parents would actually admit that to themselves today, they wouldn't haul their kids into a court. They would kill themselves. It would kill them, right? So the strongest and the deepest impulse in a human being is the pleasure of seeing their kids be good. How come nobody ever points that out? In analyzing the human psyche, how come that never gets mentioned? Isn't that too good? can't be that positive, but that, that, is, that is the truth. So, the highest impulse in a human being is pleasure. The lower the activity, the more earthy the activity, the greater the pleasure, the more intense. And that's why we have pleasure from our senses more than from our intelligence. And that's also why we have more pleasure when our children do something good than just the fact that that's my child. Because the higher the talent, it, the lower it will find its expression. So if your child is cute and intelligent, that's pleasure. But it doesn't compare to if the child does something good, shows goodness acts on goodness. And that's why every effort we make in raising our children properly is worth it. No matter how often we have to repeat the lesson, no matter how much we have to go out of our way to send them to the right schools and give them the right influences and make sure that they read the right books and so on, it's worth it. Practically speaking, just off topic, off, uh, off the record, Television is horrible. Not because there's sex and violence, but because it appeals to the child's pleasures and encourages indulgence. 
It cheapens the most sacred of our impulses. It commercializes pleasure. That is sacrilege. Just that alone. So even if all the shows were wonderful, the commercials are terrible. Commercials degrade human beings. You know they're not ashamed anymore. They used to say, remember, more doctors smoke Lucky Strike than any other cigarette. What are they trying to say? Not that it tastes good. Doctors smoke it. See, this is this is a cigarette. Yeah. This car, I mean, this car will run forever. Okay, that makes a little sense. Today they're not ashamed to pander. You know you want it. Obey your thirst. You hear these commercials? It is so vulgar. Come on, you are a slave. Do it. You can't resist the temptation, and you shouldn't. That's basically the punchline of every commercial. So if you want to um, refine the highest impulse in your child's life, turn off the television. It is not dedicated to making your child better. Is that a safe bet? <laughs> television and its commercials and its shows are not there to produce virtue in your child. It's there to take advantage of his pleasure-seeking impulse. Make sense?